You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So this morning, I want to introduce to you, Trey Lemire is going to be preaching to us from God's Word. Trey is a uh, covenant member of Connection Church also, as well as a, a new gospel community leader will become a gospel community leader this fall. And uh, the most significant thing that I can tell you about Trey this morning that will be uh, encouraging for you is that for the last two plus, we've known each other for many years, but for the last two years at least, Trey has become one of the foremost encouragers of God's word in my life. So in one-on-one settings and small group settings, um, Trey is so knowledgeable of and passionate about God's word that he can't help but let that get out uh, for encouragement in my life. And I am excited to get to commend that to the rest of you this morning. So thank you, Trey. Thanks, Joe. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. It's truly an honor and privilege to be able to preach the word this morning. Uh, It's been almost two years since I've preached in this room. Uh, I was a member of Cross Point Baptist Church before I became a member of Connection Church. And at that last time that I preached here in this room, uh, I thought maybe it was going to be the last time I ever preached, period. Um, Smaller group, some familiar faces, but I was burnt out, deeply hurting, bitter, and just kind of fed up with God's people. And I am so thankful for how God has used Joe and Pastor Jonathan and so many of you in my life to help restore my love for God's church, even with all of her flaws and bumps and her brokenness. Uh, And so today is Father's Day, so I wish you guys a happy Father's Day. But for many of you, it's it's not a happy day. Um, either you've lost your father, or maybe you are a father and you've lost a child. Or maybe you deeply long to be a father and that just hasn't happened. And maybe some of you have never even known your father, or you've just had a really bad one. Um, so if that's you, I want to acknowledge your pain and apologize for, for that. Um, and thank you for still coming here and gathering with us. I know that's, that's hard. Um, and so when I picked a psalm to preach from a few months ago, I didn't know that it was going to be today on Father's Day, or it's also Juneteenth. Uh, but as we kind of walk through this psalm, I hope and pray that it would be used to grow you in your love for God, that you may see him and know him as God the Father, who delights to save his children through his son, Jesus, the righteous king. And so we'll be in Psalm 18 this morning, and specifically the first half of Psalm 18. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles, blue Bibles, and the seats in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those, and if you don't own one, you can take one of those with you. Uh, The Psalm 18 is on page 290 in those blue Bibles. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, big numbers are chapters, little numbers are verses, and don't be afraid of the table of contents. So as Jazz mentioned last week, uh, as 
through the summer, we go through books and uh, sp specifically the Psalms. And the Psalms is the, it's the song and prayer book of God's people. And as he mentioned, it's split up into five books. And the entire Psalter, it ends in that Psalm of Praise that we looked at last week in Psalm 150, that everywhere, everything will praise the Lord with everything they have. And so as we go kind of day by day, week by week, I want to encourage you guys to read the Psalms, spend time in them, pray through them. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in Life Together, he says, the more deeply we grow into the Psalms and the more often we pray them as our own, the more simple and rich will our prayer become. And so today's psalm is found in the first of the five books of the Psalter. And each book of the Psalter has a general kind of overarching theme. And so the theme of book one, which covers Psalms 1 through Psalms 41, it's about the establishment of God's kingdom and acknowledges that God is reigning through his appointed king. And then as it continues and goes on, book two is centered around the hope of this future messianic king. And book three then is this kind of crisis of faith as God's people are in exile and there is no king yet. And yet they're still looking forward to hope for this future king. And then book four, it calls us to faithfulness in that seemingly absence of the king, reminding us that even though it may seem that darkness is reigning, that the Lord reigns. And then book five ends and shows us how we live out our faith as we await that coming of the king who will put in final end to evil. And we live in hope as we ascend and we get closer to the kingdom and then it crescendos in those last five psalms that command us over and over again to praise the Lord. And so Psalm 18 is a royal psalm. Specifically, it's about a king and it's written by a king. And it's also a psalm of thanksgiving. It's by this king that God accomplishes everything for him, and he can do nothing but praise God for what he has done. And it's specifically written by King David, and it's also identical to a song that you will find at the end of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, there's just slight variations in wordage. But as we kind of, before we look at this, we want to understand the context of where this psalm is, where it lies in redemptive history, the story of from creation to new creation of God, saving a people for himself. And so in brief, like kind of to recap of the story so far of where we find the psalm, it starts in the garden. God makes humanity, but humanity rebels against him. We corrupt and we destroy all of creation and ourselves. And then all these relationships between, within humanity, with humanity and creation and between humanity and God, those are shattered and broken. But God gives this promise of the seed that will come to crush the head of the serpent and do away with evil, that will redeem his people. And so God makes this plan before the foundation of the world that his son, through his life, death, and resurrection, would make his people new and restore all things to himself. And so within the story of redemption, God chooses a man named Abraham and gives him this threefold promise of he will multiply him, give him a family, make him a great nation. And then he'll give his family 
a place to call their own. And then through this family, all the families of the nations will be blessed. And then eventually his descendants, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt, and God raises up another man named Moses to lead them out of slavery to the promised land. And there, once God brings them into the land he promised them, like, they don't start out with a king. Rather, they have judges that are appointed, that lead them. And you see in the book of Judges this kind of cycle that the Israelites go to of they're following the Lord, then they abandon the Lord. And they're given into the hands of their enemies, and they cry out to the God, and God raises up a new judge to lead them. But it just gets worse and worse in this downward cycle. And it ends with some truly horrifying tales of ends in rape and murder and civil war. And it ends with this last verse of saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which doesn't leave us in a good spot. And then right after that we have Samuel. Uh, the book of Samuel, and we have these two last judges, Eli and Samuel. And each of them have awful sons. Uh, Eli's sons, they're also priests, just like Eli. And they take advantage of the offering, just taking things for themselves. They grow fat with prosperity and greed. And then they also abuse and sleep with women put into their care that are working in the temple or in the tabernacle. And eventually God puts Eli and his sons to death for that. And then Samuel's sons are also appointed judges, but they pervert justice. They take bribes. They're not good judges. And so the Israelites, seeing how Samuel's sons are worthless, they're afraid. They don't know what the future holds for them. And instead of looking and asking for a king to lead them in the ways of righteousness and the ways that they need, that they can actually love God and follow his law and not just do what's right in their own eyes, instead they call out to Samuel and ask for a king so they can be like all the other nations. That they would have a strong man to come and provide and protect them. They reject God's kingship over them. They reject his provision and his protection. And so God gives them what they want, a tall, handsome man named Saul who turns out to be a wicked king. But God doesn't leave them there. In his grace, he appoints a king named David, who's a shepherd boy, who after Saul will become king. And so this, this psalm is written by that shepherd boy, become king, after God has rescued him, after God has eliminated Saul, Saul and internal enemies within his household and external enemies, and even death itself. And so this, this song is placed at the end of 2 Samuel, and here in Psalm 18, as David nears the end of his reign, and he's looking back and seeing what God has done for him. And so as we read the text, I want you to keep in mind these questions of how does David see God? Why is David thanking and praising God? And why does God rescue David? And so we'll be reading the first 29 verses of Psalm 18. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. 
who addressed the words of the song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also the mountain trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands and his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So as we look at this psalm, we can't miss the first few verses. Right at the start of the psalm, we see the high view that David has of God. Not only is it a high view, but it's, it's personal. We see the word my repeated over and over and over again. God isn't just a, re a refuge, a stronghold, but he is his refuge, his stronghold. And we could go on and on and talk about all these great, mighty attributes of God, but if we miss that two-letter word my, we'd be doing a great injustice to God's character. Because God desires a relationship with his people, to know his people and to be known by them. 
And you can know all the right things about who God is, about the Bible, love the text, and have all the right theology, but if you miss out on actually knowing him, as we saw a few weeks ago as we finished up Matthew chapter 7, where there are those that come to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we not do great works in your name? And yet, they're told, depart from me, because I've never known you. And so Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 that those who love God are known by him, and they know him. And so David starts off this psalm with those intimate words of, I love you, O Lord. And earlier on in David's reign as king, God gives this covenant, this promise to him that eventually from his line, which would last forever, there would be a king with an everlasting throne that would reign justice and peace and that would build a house for the name of the Lord. And also in there, God tells David that his household, he will look to them as sons and God will be their father. And so when we see these words of, I love you, Lord, it should remind us of that relationship God has with his people, of God as their father. And that fulfillment is ultimately in the New Testament with Jesus, who is that ultimate son of David, the son of God, where those who trust in him are adopted into his household. They're made children of God. And so when we see I love you here, it should remind us of a son loving a father and a good father caring for and protecting his children. And so after this, David, after David orienting us to the character of God and who he is, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my father, we see the reason for David's thanksgiving, his praise to God, and this poetic imagery of what God is doing, where he's sending these storms of coal and hail fire and speaking and blowing away the foundations, the seas, opening up the foundations with just his breath. And this poetic imagery plays off of what the Israelites would be familiar with of even in the creation story or it plays off of the Exodus when, as we mentioned earlier, Moses led them out of slavery. And the prophets pick up on this over and over and over again throughout the Bible. And even John in the book of Revelation, he continues that imagery. But if we look back at the creation count, uh, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The waters typically are chaos and disorder and destruction. And the Spirit is there, and with the breath, brings forth light into the darkness. It brings forth the land as the earth shakes out of the chaos, out of the chaotic waters, and now there's order and there's goodness. And then he breathes his life into the dust of the earth and comes forth man, that out of death comes life, out of nothing comes everything, out of disorder there is now order. And we see the same kind of thing as Moses, whose name comes from the verb of to draw out of waters, of God sending these plagues to send his judgment, but also to protect his people. 
to save them and rescue them. And he blows away the Red Sea as they're able to cross and escape. And we, we see that in the songs of Moses in Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32 of this very similar imagery that David is reminding us of, reminding us of who God is, what he does. And we need those constant remembrances, constant reminders of what God has done. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that when these things aren't growing, it's because we've forgotten what God has done. We've forgotten what he's done for us through his son. And the Israelites would often forget, and so they had festivals and feasts, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember when they just had to flee and didn't have enough time for their bread to rise, or the Festival of Booths where during that time when they were wandering in the desert, or every seven years they had a Sabbath year where they rested, where they released those that were indebted to one another. And then every seven Sabbaths, they had this year of jubilee where all the debts were cleared and the lands were redistributed to who they belonged to instead of piling up in the hands of a few. And so, as a reminder of that, like, today is also Juneteenth. The, it's made a federal holiday last year, but the kind of historical context was, was celebrated starting in Galveston, Texas, when this general came and about two and a half years earlier was the Emancipation Proclamation. But now the general with these soldiers and army are coming to enforce the freedom of the slaves and sets them free. And so it's a constant reminder that they've celebrated and others have launched onto as well because when some are set free, we're, we all experience that. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And it also reminds us of just the depravity of what we do to one another. That we oppress one another. But God, he doesn't forget the oppressed. He hears their cries. We see in Psalm 9, 9 through 12 of the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And so God hears the cry of the afflicted, and here, as David cries out, he hears him. And God doesn't just sit by and do nothing. Instead, he rescues him. He comes down from heaven and blows away the enemies that are afflicting his, ch his child. But that is the character of God, that we see his anger here because it's based in his love for his people, his wanting to protect them, to provide for them, to care for them, to save them. And so his anger is at those that come against his people, is against our own sin that destroys Ourselves. And so he sends his son to do away with sin and death to bring life. And so as we think of this as here is David lifting up the name of the Lord for everything that he's done, then we're asked why? 
And it says here in verse 19, it's because God delighted in him. That it's God's delight to save his people. Uh, we sang earlier of God's rejoicing over his people, uh, kind of playing off of Zephaniah 3, where God is singing over his people, those that he adopts into his family. And then right after that, we see that God is also dealing with him according to David's righteousness. And so if you, if you know the story of David, that should start to lead you to ask questions. Because David's not completely righteous. He was a good king. He was faithful. He was repentant. But he also slept with another man's wife and then had him murdered. That he's not perfect. Uh, he's not wholly righteous. Yet, it says here that he was kept from guilt. And in 24 it says that his righteousness is in his sight, that the cleanness that he has is in God's sight. Because David was faithful, even in his unfaithfulness. He trusted in the Lord, trusted him for forgiveness. We see in Psalm 51, after he's confronted with his sin, the psalm of repentance. And yet even in his repentance, he's not perfect either. Uh, in 2 Samuel, a few chapters after we see this song, David does a census because he's spurred up, he's not trusting the Lord and wants to make sure his army is large enough. Large enough as he nears the end of his reign to pass it on for his kingdom to survive, even though God has already promised him that his line will not end. And David's failure there, it points us to the need of a better king, one that is actually righteous. Because right after this, and again in 2 Samuel, David leads us with his last words. He talks about how a good king is like dew and the rising of a sun, that it kind of ties the health of their nation, the health of Israel is tied to the character of the king. That when it's a wicked king, it's like a thorn in their side and it destroys them. And yet, with David's failure, his character is not perfect. And the kings after him fail over and over and over again and worse and worse and worse until eventually the nation is pretty much destroyed and led into exile. We see, as we mentioned earlier, like the sons of Eli, sons of Samuel, are not perfect. We see Solomon, the king right after David, who's given all this wisdom, and even with all that wisdom, he starts to idolize power and sex and money, building up great wealth for himself, horses and wives and concubines, breaking every single one of the commands in Deuteronomy 17 that Mo Moses gave them from God of this is what a king should do. And so Solomon, even with all his great wisdom, he's not the king that they're looking for. And then we see, after they're in exile, Ezekiel, in chapter 34, he's calling out these leaders, these 
people that should be shepherding and leading the people. And it says this in verses 1 through 4 of Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Skipping down to verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." And then, again, skipping down to verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. We are often tempted to trust in earthly things when things in this world seem broken as they are and scary. Psalmist in Psalm 20 puts it this way, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That no political leader can actually save us and fix things. They may make some progress, but when we make that an idol, it's ultimately going to destroy us and leave us hopeless because they're going to fail. Or we look in the church with so many things going on. We see leaders fall. We see institutions fail. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because we know ourselves. If we know our own brokenness, leaders are going to fall. That we need to be reminded of where our trust is. And so as we think about that, that the health of the church is tied to who we trust as our king. That are we trusting in the Lord as our king? Are we trusting in some guy out there, some woman out there to save us, to protect us, to care for us? And even even as like a local body of church, as we get closer to installing elders, we need to look to their guidance, but remember of who is our ultimate shepherd? Who is the shepherd that leads us? 
because all these other ones are going to fail us. That the need of a new shepherd king, as it says here in Ezekiel, of this servant David, this light bringer to the darkness, that we see in Revelation 5 as John has this vision of the heavens and he's despairing because there's a scroll of, that would bring judgment and justice and there's no one worthy to open it. But then there's the lion of Judah. And as he looks at the lion, it's not a lion, but it's a slain lamb. And they begin to worship because he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll, to bring justice, to bring judgment to the world, and to heal his people. And this king, this man named Jesus, who is fully man to sympathize with our weaknesses, to pay the penalty to our sin, and yet fully God so that he could conquer it and do away with it and grant forgiveness. The pangs, the cords of death, that were constricted around the king, they were loosened and the grave could not hold him, that he's the one that brings the light to the darkness, he's the one that is actually the truly righteous king that this psalm points to, that he is the one that purifies the humble and washes them, makes them white as snow. And yet there's also this warning here, there's comfort to God's people, but there's the warning to the haughty and the crooked. And we shouldn't take that lightly, that God will bring the haughty eyes down. It says he seems torturous to the crooked. And we see his anger at those afflicting his king. And that should remind us of just the severity of what our sin is, of our destruction of God's creation. And yet, knowing God's character, it says in Ezekiel 33, right before he calls out these shepherds, that he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but would rather that they turn to him and repent. And Romans 2 tells us that it's God's loving patience and kindness that leads us to repentance that he's patient, wanting people to turn to him. Thomas Goodwin, uh, a Puritan, writes this in one of his works on God's mercy and God's justness. He writes this, My brethren, though God is just, yet his mercy may in some respect be said to be more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God does show. I mean vindictive justice. In these acts of justice, there is a satisfaction to an attribute that he meets and is even with sinners. Yet there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scripture so expresses it. There is something in it that is contrary to him. I desire not the death of a sinner. That is, I delight not simply in it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There is always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that is his nature and disposition. It is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. and There is no reluctance in him. 
Therefore, in Lamentations 3.33, when he speaks of punishing, he says, he does not from his heart afflict nor grieve the children of men. But when he does come to speak of showing mercy, he says he does it with his whole heart and with his whole soul, as we see in Jeremiah 32.41. And therefore, acts of justice are called his strange work and his strange act in Isaiah 28.21. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them, to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. So as we keep God's character in, remi- in remembrance of him as this good father that cares for his people and is patient with his enemies, that even when we were his enemies, he showed his love and that he sent his son to die for them that Jesus, as the good older brother said, I will take their sins upon myself. I will pay what they're due. And then he destroys the giant of sin and death. And then after he does that, just as David, this, as a young shepherd boy, slays this Goliath, this Philistine giant that's afflicting the people of God. He slays them, and then the whole army of the Israelites chase after the Philistines. That it's in the same way that as Christ slays sin and death and finally puts an end to the enemy, he calls us to follow him in the spiritual war. That's not against flesh and blood, but is against powers and principalities, as it says in Ephesians 6. And so here, the king is running against a troop, and by his God, he can leap over a wall. And we're called to follow him in that, in chasing after evil by doing good, by replacing hate with love, and meeting oppression with justice and mercy. Because it says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. And so knowing how much mercy God has just lavished upon us, it should just overflow within us towards others. But it's always, when we're called to do something, it's always preceded by what God has done for us. That even when God gives the law to his people, it starts off with, I'm the Lord your God who rescued out of bondage and slavery. Now this is what I call you to do that Christ has saved his people. And now he calls us to follow him. And when we think about following him, we think about proclaiming the good news of his kingdom. As that's what Evangelion meant, is when a king would conquer, when a king would have victory, then the good news would go forth. And so we're called to be his ambassadors by shouting and declaring this good news of what he has done. Yet often here, especially within our American culture with its political divisions, it even affects how we look at the gospel. That we start thinking of it almost like kind of heretically and gnostically of just thinking it as a spiritual cure. Or maybe we fall on a different side of the spectrum. We fall into just thinking it as a social cure, as 
helping and meeting needs, but not declaring the truth of God's word. And yet, it's not that at all, because we are created with a body and a soul, and sin has marred both of those. But Jesus, he's, he's promised to restore them both. And therefore, living out the good news of declaring of his kingdom, it calls us to care for both. It calls us to care for the souls of those around us and to care for their bodily needs. As Jesus calls us to, again and again, to care for the least of those among us, to give water to the thirsty, food to the hungry, that those that have much should give away extra cloaks, extra food, that we're called to care for everyone, even our enemies, even those that hate us and ridicule us. We're called to pray for them and to bless them because our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemy is the sin within ourself. The sin in the world is the accuser that prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. That that is who our enemy is. And so this call of Christ to care for others, to care for the least of us, to proclaim his kingdom, is to declare the truth of who he is, and also to meet those needs. And yet we're not alone in that. That God is with us. That Jesus is God with us. And then when Jesus ascended to the heavens, he sent forth the Spirit to be with his people, to guide them into all truth and understanding, and to be with them, to comfort them in their affliction and their sorrows, and to grant them power. The same power that rose him from the dead is given to his people. And so as we look at this psalm, as we look at the character of who God is, of his caring delight to rescue his children through his son, Jesus, the only true and righteous king, should call us to thanksgiving, just as David does here, of who he is. Should call us to praise for what he's done. Call us to remembrance of what death we were in and have now been given life. Because that's the big idea here, is God the Father delights to save his children through his Son, Jesus, the righteous King. Then he calls us to follow him, to be his ambassadors of light and the darkness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that reminds us of who you are and what you have done for us. God, you do not leave us nor forsake us, but instead, you rescue us. When we were faithless and far from you, rebelling against you, hating and doing whatever we thought was right in our own eyes, you did not leave us there, even though you could have and rightfully should have. But instead, you sent your son to save your people, to rescue us, to give us life. So God, help us to see that, help us to remember that, and help us to share that life with others. 
in every way we can, stewarding everything you have given us, our talents, our time, our treasure. God, as we remember how you have comforted us, help us to comfort those in need and affliction and sorrow, either by death of their own sinfulness or just the sinfulness of this broken world. And God, give us hope as we look forward to that day when you will restore all things, that you will purify the souls of your people and give us glorified and resurrected bodies as we live on that future heaven and earth of what life should be like. In your son's name we pray. Amen.